the main theme of the identity trap, skepticism of truth. And the key way to understand any social situation or any political question is race, gender, and sexual orientation. Uh, Robin DiAngelo the... says that um, every time a, a, a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy that, to bear on uh, right. the Bill of Rights, uh, number two. Uh, uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, those are all... Uh, just an attempt to pull wool over people's eyes. We have they to reject, quote-unquote, the defunct racial equality ideology, end quote, of the civil rights movement. Right. Now, right, I think that people, whether on the center-right or the center-left, um, should have a coherent response to that. Water. And so here's the three responses that I think we need to give. Live from the Table, the official podcast of The Comedy Cellar. This week, Yasha Monk author of the new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. Okay, today I interviewed my friend Yasha Monk. Yasha is an intellectual hero of mine because in a world of cowardly people and journalists who say one thing in private and then something totally different in public, Yasha speaks out of only one side of his mouth. To wit, Yasha's new book, The Identity Trap, is a direct attack on identity politics and all its ideological cousins that encourage people to define themselves by their race, gender, sexual orientation, cultural origins, etc. His label for all these strains of thought is the identity synthesis. According to Yasha, quote, advocates of the identity synthesis reject universal values and neutral rules like free speech and equal opportunity as mere distractions that aim to occlude and perpetuate the marginalization of minority groups. I think because I was so immersed in Yashaland preparing for this interview, I could have done a better job of laying the groundwork and questioning him about the basics of the book. But read the book. It's fantastic. The book covers wokeness and all the culture war issues that have everybody on edge these days. Yasha equips the reader with arguments to counter the identity synthesis and gives us a guide to fighting for social justice, which we all believe in, without abandoning our basic unifying principles. I cannot recommend this book enough, and all of Yasha's work, his writings at The Atlantic, his magazine that he edits, Persuasion, his podcasts, his other books. Check him out, Yasha Monk. Okay, hit it. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Live from the Table. Um, I'm doing one of my rare one-on-one -on -one interviews today with Yasha. By the way, how do you pronounce your name properly, your last name? This has become a... a, a how, how many years have you known me, Noam? Well, but Coleman just sent an email. You saw that. He's heard people saying it, Mount, or, and, 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 uh, and now, he's, uh, now it's debatable. I'll tell you something about my name. It is made up by my mom. My mom made up my last name, so there's really no rhyme or reason to it. Um, how do, how does I, I, say, I say Yasha Monk. Monk, okay. Um, you, say whatever. So... The guest today is Yasha Monk, who is an expert on the crisis of liberal democracy and the rise of populism, the author of five books that have been translated into over 10 languages. He's a professor of the practice of international affairs at John Hopkins, a contributing editor of The Atlantic, a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, and a Moynihan public scholar at City College. And he has a new book out now called The Identity Trap. A story of ideas and power in our time. Welcome, Yasha Monk. Here's a book. Look, look oh, there at it, it in, the, in the camera if you're on video. There we are. So a few preliminaries before we get into the, to the meat of it. First of all, how does a, a young guy from Germany at such a young age break through 
into the uh, most prestigious circle of Ameri- of experts of American politics. How did that happen? Uh, gradually and then rapidly, as people say about people going bankrupt, I guess. Um, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Germany. I always um, was uh, interested in going to live abroad. I did my undergrad in, in, in Cambridge in England. Um, and I really wanted to come live in New York. And I applied for a fellowship from the German government to spend a year at Columbia University. And, uh, you know, one thing or another led to the fact that I never really officially lived in New York since that time, but I've been in the United States on and off since about 2007. Um, and so at this point, I've spent, you know, a majority of my life in, in the Anglosphere and, uh, you know, nearly half of my life in, in, in the United States. Um, so that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that I was in grad school and I was starting to worry about the rise of populism and uh, what it was doing to our political system. Um, And that was at a time when uh, that was uh, an unpopular opinion, when people were saying, you know, democratic institutions in places like the United States are safe, we don't have to worry about them. Um, 2013, 2014. Before Trump. Before Trump, yeah. That's why I like to say I'm a, I'm a democracy crisis hipster. I worried about the crisis <laughs> of democracy before it was cool. And so originally I was interested in the United States and, and what I saw is some worrying signs there, but I was also really interested in what was going on in, in, in Europe and in Latin America and in, 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 in other places with populists from people like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela to Recep Erdogan in, in Turkey to Marine Le Pen in France, right? But as a result, when uh, Trump appeared on the scene and won the Republican nomination, I was sort of one of the people who was equipped to talk about uh, the nature of his candidacy and who he was, and so I ended up being an expert on on, on American democracy in a certain kind of way. Yeah, but you, you didn't have all the years that American school children have of learning about American history over, I mean, you had to really do a crash course, I suppose. Like, you know about the revolution, about the Federalist Papers, you, you know all the stuff that we don't even know. And you must have well, taken that in in a very short time. Like, you must have really done a deep dive. I suppose. I mean, I mean you know, my training really wasn't in intellectual history. I, you know, because my forefathers were in the wrong place at the wrong time for about five generations, I, I, I ended up studying history because I had a sense of how uh, history impacts people's lives in a very concrete way. But I arrived in England. I, I did my undergrad at Cambridge. Now, now you're, you're, you're referring there to the fact that you're Jewish and you're from Germany and, uh, and your, his, your, your family history is a, a series of close calls and maybe uh, actually deaths at the hands of people who hated Jews, correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my, my, my grandparents were born in Shtetls in what today is Ukraine, what then would have been the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, their parents perished in the Holocaust. A lot of their siblings perished in the Holocaust. My grandparents were convinced communists and wanted to go, you know, make a um, make a more just and more fair and more thriving society. And 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 went to prison for the communist convictions in the 1930s. But then uh, and then after the war, uh, helped to build up a regime in Poland. But lo and behold, the regime turned on them. And in 1968, they and my parents were, were thrown out of a country in which uh, my parents at least had... had, had can, I, can I use that to j- jump off into a different direction? Because I'll f- I will, sure, I'm afraid sure. I'll forget to come back to it. It's interesting because I wondered about this. You know, uh, it, it was typical of people my age to have grandparents who, were de- who lived through the Depression. 
and they saw everything that happened through that lens and and consequently they would overreact to all sorts of things because the, <laughs> the next oppression was right around the corner do you ever wonder do you ever worry in your own scholarship that in some way that's happening to you that because uh some of this history is so visceral to you at the hands of populism that maybe you're um you overreact to the threat in some way do you worry about that Oh, you know, I know that you have a good uh, nose for people going wrong. So when you say that to me, I start to worry about it. No, no, I, 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 uh, I, I don't know the no, answer I, to I that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's definitely, it's definitely a human dynamic. You know, that, that something's worrying. You're worrying sure. about something. You can overreact you know, to I it. Think I think. And the opposite. Uh, to be fair to you, the opposite. The opposite is true too. That people underreact. And right. we have a big People problem with that. Who've built, you yes. know, who, who yeah. for seven generations have lived in pleasant suburbs and who can't imagine that something might change. That's that right. might be unstable, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like my track record on this is pretty good in the sense that um, uh, I was one of the first people to warn about this danger to our democratic institutions. And I know that we probably have slightly divergent views on what the nature of that threat is and how severe it is. But I feel like, you know, I, let me take you back to when I was in grad school and I took this class in comparative politics. And what people told us is, hey, you know, a lot of democracies are unstable. If you're poor, if you haven't had a democracy for a long time, it might collapse. This happens over time. If you have a rich dictatorship, it might persist for a really long time. But if you are a poor, if you are an affluent country but has had democratic institutions for a long time, you really can take that to run, for granted. I mean, these countries have consolidated democratic regimes. Democracy is the only game in town. Unless aliens land on Earth or we you know, all starve to death, um, you really don't have to worry about their, their democratic institutions, right? Uh, and I called bullshit on that because I thought that all of the uh, sort of signs, all of the concomitants of a stable democracy don't, didn't seem to be present anymore because a lot of people were deeply unhappy with the democratic system, because they said they were open to authoritarian alternatives to it, because pretty extremist parties were rising in the polls in a lot of different countries, because people at the time were really disengaging from politics and not turning out to vote, um, uh, leaving political parties. Um, and, and I thought all of that was reason to worry. Now, I didn't think there was a reason to say, oh, my God, the sky is going to fall tomorrow. It was where, you know, if we, if, if a sort of, likelihood that people in my field would have given to democracy dying was 1%. Um, I thought it was more like 25%. Uh, and I think the weird thing that's happened since 2016 is that a lot of people in the field would now give a chance of 50 or 75 or something percent to democracy dying. Right? They think we're basically screwed and everything is terrible and it's done already. And I feel like I've held relatively steady. I, I, I am concerned about American democratic institutions. Well, well let me ask you, because you know, I, I, always, I always wonder about this. They say existential threat to democracy and, and all these things. And, um, and I want to take it seriously. I don't want to uh, be stupid about it. Um, does it mean a dictator takes over? That the military then falls in behind a strong man and America is held in place at the point of a gun? Is that what it means that democracy might die in America? Because I, I have... Maybe it's my own well, failure so, of imagination. I have trouble picturing right. that. Well, so, so, so uh, first of all, I don't think it's very helpful to think of democracies in ones and zeros, right? Uh, I, it's not just one country is completely a democracy and is democratic in every single respect, and another country is, you know, totalitarianism. And, you know, you're in the world of 1984, and if you say one word against the dictator, some secret microphone is going to 
you know, pick it up and send you to jail, right? There's a lot of political systems around the world which uh, political scientists know by different kinds of names, whether it's a competitive authoritarian regime or um, uh, my friend Roberto Fo and I have named this kind of term of dirty democracy, uh, you know, where there is some amount of real competition, there's some amount of um, viability that the opposition has, but it's a really skewed playing field, and the people who are in power enjoy tremendous unfair advantages over okay. the opposition. Now, now, to come to the United States, let me put it this way, right? Uh, the one thing that most Americans can agree on right now, perhaps except for you, is that our democracy is in danger, which is to say, you know, if you are on Donald Trump's side of a political aisle, um, then you believe that the democracy has been stolen, right? Then you believe that actually the most important element of our democracy, which is that elections settle who gets to rule uh, by a set of rules which we have to follow, has been broken because actually Donald Trump is the legitimate victor of a 2020 election and yet he has been hounded out of office. And if you disbelieve that story, as I do, um, then you think that the sitting president was not willing to go home uh, uh, on the basis of a spurious theory about the election being stolen and uh, inflicted some amount of violence and um, or incited some amount of violence um, and certainly, uh, 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 you know, sowed the belief in a lot of the election, in the, the, the election, that the election was stolen when it actually was not. So it's sort of, either way you look at it, American democracy, and the, the most fundamental aspect of American democracy is in trouble, which is where we use elections to figure out who should get to rule. Now, falling short of that uh, standard doesn't mean that we have totalitarian dictatorship, right? It doesn't mean that the next election might not be determined in some important ways by the votes that people cast at the ballot box. But, but, but how can we not think of that as a significant threat to our democratic institutions? Well, I mean, okay, so to me, so long as in every four-year period there's an opportunity for the voters to speak and, and return the pendulum to where we'd want it to be, I would say democracy is healthy, or at least if that's what, it, it's a far cry from an existential threat to our democracy. Yes, the Trump voters... But, but no, there's, 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 there's conditions around that, right? I mean, you have performer elections in China, you have performer elections in Zimbabwe, you have performer elections in Turkey, right? To yeah. be meaningful, they have to be such that uh, the opposition actually has a fair chance of winning and that we think if the opposition gets more votes at, according to the long-standing rules of the game, right, in the United States it's a majority of the electoral college rather than a majority of the popular vote, then they're actually going to rule. And, you know, there's stark cases where that's clearly the case or clearly not the case, and then there's hard cases in the middle. Um, but, but I think that's something to, worth to be concerned about. We're saying that the, the criterion for elections is just, the criterion for democracy is just that there's elections every four years, then a vast number of countries in the world are, are democracies. But clearly no, we, we, we have, to have, fair, have to have fair elections. Look, for instance, you could say that the idea to pack the Supreme Court that the uh, Democrats wanted was, you know, people going to roll their eyes, but in a certain way, that was a real threat to democracy because they could collapse two branches of government into one for who knows how long that would last. 
I agree. That's, but, yeah. but, that, but that's a great example of a way in which I think there would have been a threat to our democratic institutions. I'm, uh, I was horrified by the fact that, that you know, a, a vocal minority within the Democratic Party was advocating for that. Thankfully, yeah. it didn't go anywhere. Um, uh, but, but again, you know, it's not... You could say, well, if they'd done that, that's not a break of democracy. Our constitution allows for this. The constitution doesn't say there's nine judges, right? They would have followed the normal... Senate procedure for passing those judges at a certain kind of level of analysis, that's not a threat to democracy at all. That's just the system working. And yet I think if you have a, a fair analysis, you would say, no, a, a very important norm of our political system is that you don't abuse your control over the Senate in such a way that you just pack the court. That goes against some of our deeply held norms. Now, if that had happened, it wouldn't mean that there's a dictator, right? It wouldn't mean that, you know, Hunter Biden would become the king of America for 50 years, right? Um, but no, I, I, I would. would have, yeah. But it would have been a real uh, threat to our democratic institution. It'd be I a threat, not an existential threat, but it would. It would be. A, it would be a real threat. And you know, these guys are always um, disillusioned. These presidents, when the justices they appoint actually don't just uh, line up behind them in every issue as they. Expected, especially Republicans sure. uh, have learned that. You're frozen there. Are you there? I'm yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's see if we can tie this together with the book. I have a lot of friends like you, good friends, who describe themselves as center left. I think you would describe yourself as center left, correct? I would. Yeah, and then I say, well, you can't be center left because I'm center right, and we agree on almost everything. So so what's <laughs> going on there? And I, and I've tried to unwind that, you know. I was tempted to think of like a, a zebra, you know, you know that they, you ask a kid, is a zebra white with black stripes or black with white stripes? So you might you might see yourself as a, as a white zebra with black stripes, which make you, you know, the conservative things that you believe in. And I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm a black zebra and, and the white stripes. But actually, we end up looking exactly the same. But what what actually defines someone like you who considers himself center left is in some way, I think, the gravitational force of the Democratic Party and the people who, in general, you're more comfortable with. The, the thought I, You can correct me if I'm wrong. The thought of voting for a Republican, I don't really vote, but the thought of voting for a Republican and telling anybody that you voted for a Republican is probably more than you could bear. But I would still say that I think that the issues that you're writing about now reverberate much, much more with people to the center and to the right of it than people from the center and to the left of it. And I'll say one more thing, you know, like um, you want us on that wall, you know, that uh, a few good men, that the fight that you are going to try to fight with this book that you've written the center to the right is essential. They're the people in the trenches fighting this fight for you. They're the people putting, you know, complaining about this stuff. They're the people who are ready to have the nerve to speak out at school board meetings, speak out on television, whatever it is. The people that you're mostly um, hanging out with, although we all know privately they say these things, they won't dare, most of them say, most of the stuff that they believe in public. So you are beholden, actually, to the center to the, to the center and to the right of it uh, in a certain way that you're probably not happy about. Any, any comments on all that? Sure. Well, so the first <laughs> thing is the way that I think about politics is that there's yeah. two 
distinctions. One is between liberal and authoritarian, and the other is between left and right. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I say liberal in this context, I don't mean liberal conservative. I mean uh, believing in things like you know, the separation of powers and the Bill of Rights and the importance of free speech and, and free assembly and all of those sort of basic <coughs> um, elements of a uh, democratic republic or a liberal democratic political system, right? And I think that is the most important distinction. I'm very happy to be friends with anybody who is in that sense a liberal. And those people can be pretty far left and they can be pretty far right. Uh, a lot of them happen to be center left or center right. And I'm happy in a sense to think of all of those as uh, I I at least my um, allies in an important sense and in many cases as my political friends. There's a separate set of questions about uh, whether you're left wing or right wing. Now on the economic uh, uh, front, being much more left-wing would mean wanting to have much higher taxation on corporations, much bigger welfare state. Being much more right-wing would mean wanting much lower taxes and a much smaller welfare state. I can have disagreements with people on that, but that's legitimate. Some of that could be about culture as well, right? Um, how much of an incentive do you want the state to give people to get married? How do you feel about things like gay marriage? How do you feel about how lax our uh, legal immigration system should be? You can have deep disagreements about that. Again. Some of that I'm going to be passionate about. I'm going to say, I disagree with you, but I'm ultimately happy to think of you as my friend as long as you are willing to stand up for the liberal rather than the authoritarian side of the political spectrum. And there are genuine authoritarians on both sides, right? Hugo Chavez is a left authoritarian. Um, I, I would argue that somebody like Viktor Orban is a right authoritarian. And they I both regard equally as uh, people who are not going to be my political friends because on a fundamentally important thing, they're on the other side of it, right? And then you're asking this kind of question of like, all right, so how do you end up being on the center-left rather than the center-right? And I think there, there's a, um, a substantive answer and a biographical answer, right? And the substantive answer I would give is that uh, I, do, I am a kind of social democrat. Um, I certainly believe in the power of markets and the importance of economic growth and uh, all of that, but I do fundamentally want to live in a society where we have a strong and functioning welfare state that makes sure that when people uh, are unemployed, when they're sick, when they're elderly, uh, when they just happen not to have great marketable talents, uh, we make sure that they uh, have a humane life. Um, and on a lot of those cultural issues, like you, uh, I think I'm 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 pretty progressive, not in the sense of what it means if you buy into the, the, what are calling the identity synthesis or the identity trap. But I was in favor of gay marriage long before it was the law of the land. I think that immigration um, uh, can be a great boon to this country, where there's lots of amazing talented people around the world who should get a chance to 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 come here and contribute their talents to this, to this country. And I think all of those give me good reason. I'm also not from a, I'm not from a religious background. I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious, right? And so I'm not, uh, I, I'm a little bit wary of the role that religion might play in a country like the United States. I mean, a lot of my friends exaggerate that threat. I don't think America is ever going to turn to a theocracy. Um, but naturally, I'm, I'm on the more secular side of those debates. And so in all of those reasons, I think I have substantive reason uh, to, to be on the center left rather than the, the center right. Now, you're right. A lot of the time, people on the center-left have been cowardly about this. They yes. haven't spoken out about these things. And that's partially because we belong in institutions where doing that is more costly. Um, but hey, I am. 
I'm on the center left and I have written this book. I've written about it in the New York Times and the Atlantic and it sometimes made me unpopular with my colleagues. I've sometimes worried about the personal consequences for that. But I still belong in these institutions. I haven't been thrown out of them so far and I don't think I'm about to be. And part of the mission of the identity trap of this book is to show people a way for how to argue against these ideas substantively and in terms of how to do it that empowers them to do that. So if, is it a fair criticism of the center-left that we haven't fought against this stuff, especially in the last years, in the way we should have done, that we've said one thing privately to each other over lunch and another thing publicly? That's absolutely a fair criticism. But it's not okay. a reason for me to change my political ideals or, or, or where I stand. Well, well, okay, let's just take one... I have a lot to say, but let's just take one small example. They got rid of um, <clears throat> racial uh, um, preferences in university admissions. Now, what's been fascinating about that, I don't know if you've had the same experience, is that almost everybody I know has been like, yeah, yeah, I guess that's probably a good thing. Like, it, it just kind of all melted away. And I, especially Asian people I would speak to are like, is it okay for me to say I'm really happy about this? Because I really never felt I could say it out loud. It kind of just, it kind of just seems like most people are not that upset about it. Now... And this, of course, the opposite, uh, a different Supreme Court, we could have um, put these in stone for the next 50 years if Hillary had been the, the president. So if you think this kind of zero-sum competition between ethnic groups in America for something as important as spots in universities is a formula for deep social turmoil, then you have to be happy that there was a conservative Supreme Court. And there was no way to get that except by casting a vote for the side that you don't like. The side that you do like, that you'll continue to vote for, is the side to entrench these problems forever. Because, I mean, nothing's forever, obviously, because some, after Trump, some moderate Republican actually could, I think, become very, very formidable if he starts to um, triangulate on a lot of these issues. But, but as it is now, I've, I've run the thought experiment in my own mind. It's like, you know, we survived four years of Trump. I didn't support Trump uh, for different reasons than you didn't support him. I won't, I won't go into that now. But having survived it, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of happy that we have this court and if I had it to do over, I would do it over because they're going to get rid of these horrible policies and they're the only ones who can. So that's got to give you some, uh, you know, pause, right? Well, let me say a few things. Right? The first is that I'm a little bit less optimistic than you about the impact of that ruling. Because one of the things that the justices have done is to say that, of course, nothing is stopping universities from using personal statements in which people talk about the hardship and making that a big part of their applications. And immediately, university presidents seized on that and said, this is a lot of what we're going to do. Some of them are now abolishing SAT scores. Yeah, but somebody um, could find that illegal. I mean, you know, somebody will say, well, no, they, this they, they is... They might yeah, or they might yeah, not. Yeah. But, but at least, there's, but at least actually, there's a law against it now. At least there is now a, a legal structure that says, yeah. you can't do that. That's huge. Sure. It's huge. I just, I think that actually, I just fear that the, uh, my view on the American admission system, and I'm not a burn the system down kind of a guy, as I think is yeah. obvious from everything I've said so far, 
is that we should burn the whole damn thing down. I think it's absurd that my kids would have an advantage getting into university because they would be the kids of a faculty member. It's absurd that... Or, or my kids have, who, who, are, who are mixed race. Sure, or, or the yeah. kids of somebody who's an alumnus or the kids of somebody who, you know, is good at volleyball or the kids of... Or, or somebody who's good at volleyball, somebody, you know, who's decent at a violin and we need a second violinist for the university orchestra. I mean, from, from anywhere outside of the United States, this whole damn system looks Baroque and absurd. Uh, uh, by the way, the fact that... Um, uh, Boys now get a huge advantage in college admissions because um, girls outperform boys in high schools and God forbid that we have a campus that's 55% girls rather than 50-50. And the whole thing is absurd. The whole thing is absurd. I I, I just worry (coughs) that this new Supreme Court ruling actually is going to put even more emphasis on the worst parts of the admissions process, which is the personal essay, which, which teaches Americans to lie about their lives and to... Um, put their kind of uh, sob stories, whether genuine or often semi-invented, uh, you know, out for, for personal profit and gain in order to get the entry ticket into the American elite. The whole thing is unseemly and I worry it's going to get worse. Anyway, that's one point. But the broader point is, yes, this is never a particularly, pop- particularly pol- popular policy. In 2020, when Biden won the state of California with uh, however many points, 20 points, 30 points uh, over Donald Trump, uh, uh, Californians also voted against affirmative action in uh, Californian state co- schools. So this is clearly something that in a majority-minority state that is very left-leaning uh, was, was, was deeply unpopular. And to your, to your broadest point, uh, look, in, in, in the American political system, you have a choice between two political parties. Um, and uh, that's a crabby choice. Right? It's one of the concomitants of our system. There are many, many, many elements of a Democratic Party I'm unhappy with. Um, but yes, if I have to choose between the overall package of a Democratic Party in its current form or the overall package of a Republican Party whose leader is Donald Trump, uh, I will vote for the Democratic Party. Because of Trump, but not, not, not so much. Well, I don't want to get, get into it, but I, I, I feel like it's more because of Trump, and that's a good reason. Um, but policy-wise... Okay, so let's for instance, let's just let's just go off for a second. There's a book, big, huge thing now about book banning. Right now, you know, personally, I don't really care what my kids read. I think you you might be similar. However, I looked at some of those books. I read both. I read um, Gender Queer and Flamer. I read them last night. I was having an argument. These are the two most banned books. And I, and I, after reading them, I asked myself the following question. If one of my daughter's friends came over and wanted to borrow this book from us, would I give it to them or would I say, no, no, you better ask your parents first. I'm not going to give my parents, my my, uh, 11-year-old's friends books that are this explicit. I said, well, if if I wouldn't do that, then, you know, why would the schools think they could do that outside of the, the comfort of the parents? But then I thought, but it's even a bigger problem than that. Because does anybody actually think that if there were zero school libraries in the age of the Internet and Google and TikTok and YouTube, 
that a single LGBTQ plus child would not have access to information that they're searching for because they couldn't find it in the school library. And this is a huge issue now. The the book banners, the book banners. And I'm like, this is all a big lie. Nobody cares about school libraries. But okay, so, so this is, the, so a lot of these policies that we argue about are long past, in my opinion, the uh, you know, law of diminishing returns. Such that, like, labor law for a long time, with a little bit of effort, you can make a huge change in people's lives. Civil rights laws, a little bit, huge change in people's lives. Now, with a huge effort, I don't know if you can make any, but any change in people's lives with these laws and the, law, uh, the um, unintended consequences in terms of labor and workplace are huge such that every new labor law, I know it's your interview, I'm talking to you, every new labor law is now uh, a new legal action. A new, just people start suing. Every new law is a, people are walking around with visions of being a plaintiff in their head. But if you ask anybody who I know who said, what was it like to be a waiter in the 70s and 80s? It must have been awful. They're like, no, it was fine. Well, you mean all these new laws, they didn't need them? Well, I, I, they would say, no, I guess, you know, no, they were fine. Everything was fine, you know, except for maybe um, sexual harassment, which I think is a good thing. So I see a lot of the, the policies on the left as just like trying to scratch out some last bit of, of return on, on issues which are basically settled. Um, and I see this book banning as the same kind of thing. No, nobody cares anymore. There's, they don't, school libraries don't matter. But anyway, but it comes me to so I, I I took out some quotes of, of your book and they, and they're relevant to this. Yasha Monk says, "The ease with which many American colleagues and acquaintances express disdain and de- deprecation for the culture and beliefs of ordinary Americans has no equivalent in any other country I know." And and this is not continued, but similar. You say, for a growing number of Americans on the left side of the political spectrum. Their deep disenchantment with the state of their country has made this promise ring hollow. They have increasingly started to see the flaws of the country as a feature rather than a bug. For them, the United States is defined by its injustices and imperfections. Um, And you have a few things like this describing, I think, very accurately what is animating uh, the Trump vote. And I'll add one other thing to that. You didn't write it, but I, I saw it today, and I thought it was by um, Norman Podhoritz, who said that he saw uh, the current state of politics as a kind of war between the love of America versus the hatred of America. It's a, he says that he describes it to a domestic uh, or civil war almost. And, he, and he, he continues to be pro-Trump, I believe, because he feels that um, well, I'll tell you what he said. He says, Trump is a type of person, there's a wonderful Yiddish slang word, a bulvan, a bully, doesn't care, crashes through. Trump's bad side is a necessary accompaniment to his good side. And he describes him as, a, as an unworthy but necessary vessel for all these things. So, what's your, what is your sympathy to the Trump voter? And, and how do you convince your milieu to be more kind to them? Um, well, listen, I mean, I, I, I do think, and I've started to think about this more and more, that part of what explains the rise of somebody like Donald Trump is the extent to which the American elite is out of touch with the rest of the country. And this is something that, uh, as a kind of, 
anthropologists today would say insider-outsider, um, I've observed over and over, right? I'm an immigrant to this country, but you know, I did my PhD at Harvard. I'm senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, right? Like, um, I, I know the American elite, and yet I have a slightly outsider view on it because I'm not of it. I didn't grow up in it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I am struck, even by comparison to Germany and France, where the problem also exists uh, in a more mild form, by how extreme this trend is, right? Um, you look at uh, places like our Ivy League universities, not only is uh, an overwhelming majority of students in those schools from privileged backgrounds, um, but even if they're not, even if they come from generally average families, you know, somewhere in the middle of the country, uh, they are put at the age of 18 into these college campuses where they're only around other uh, uh, people who probably come from elite families who certainly go on to be elites later in their lives, who move to the big cities and go to the fancy industries. And by the time that they have genuine influence and power in the world, by the time they're 40, 45, 50, they have been uh, in a echo chamber, hermetically sealed off from much of the country, for the majority of their lives. And this is uh, uh, not just a financial uh, world apart, it is a, a, a political and cultural world apart. They have different ideas and values and watch different shows. Um, and so as a result, it can become completely natural that you adopt certain kind of ideas and norms um, uh, that to uh, people outside of that world is just bewildering. And so I do think that uh, the disdain that a lot of my own friends and colleagues in my own world have taken on for average Americans um, explains a lot of big political missteps, explains why it's so hard for them to understand that more voters, I disagree with that judgment, but more voters today think the Democratic Party is too extreme and think the Republican Party is too extreme, right? And they genuinely do not get that. You know, if you asked them to put one of these complaints in a way that passes what some researchers call the ideological Turing test, though it be recognized as people who hold those views as an actual articulation of their views, they would not be able to do that. And sure, of course, that is one of the things that makes a lot of people angry and makes a lot of people angry for good reason. But, but now, I don't think that means that their chosen political champion is in fact going to do anything good for them, right? Well, um, he, got them, he got them a conservative court. Yeah. He did that. I, I don't know. I don't know that the conservative court did that much for, you know, for, for people around the country. Um, uh, they, they, they may have passed certain uh, judgments that they agree with. They passed certain judgments that I agree with. But well, I don't know that they feel, you know, my life is now transformed because of the conservative justices. I think that's, that's, that's about as out of touch as, 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 as those democratic elites are with, uh, well, with all uh, due I, respect and friendship, Noam. No, I, I, don't, I don't. Listen, things move very slowly. It's a start. But I think the, um, I think the decisions of the court meant a lot to um, many Trump supporters. But here's the thing. Do you remember when uh, OJ got off? Were you in America then, or you, you must have I, I was TV. not in America, okay. but I watched the miniseries. Okay. We we mused. We we watched with amazement as after seeing, as Bill Maher said, Hitler left less evidence. I mean, after seeing it, absolute more than election denial. It was clear, clear, clear that he practically decapitated these two innocent people. We saw Black Americans cheering. Uh, you know, uh, just intoxicated with happiness that OJ got off. 
And this is kind of like election denial. Do they really believe OJ was innocent? I don't, I don't think they really believed OJ was innocent. But in some way, this satisfied them because of they felt that the world was against them. And it was impossible for us to understand it, but we have to, but we, but we have to recognize something, something was going on. And I think there's something is going on with the Trump voters, and it's easier to understand, which is that nobody wants to vote for somebody that hates them. They are not stupid. They saw how there were so many lies told about Russia stuff. They saw how the same people would look down their nose at some college kids, you know, having fun at the beach during uh, COVID. And then all of a sudden, as soon as there's BLM protests, they'd say, well, it's fine to protest during COVID for BLM. And, you know, they saw, I mean, I could go on and on at, at the things they see. And they just can't bear to support the side that hates them. So then when Trump feeds them some, some half-truths about the election, they swallow them because they want to, which is the most human thing of all. And, you know, I, I was doing some research on that, too. Just to say, the other side is also a little full of shit on this. So, for instance, in the New York Times, I think this is 2012, there's an, there's an article here, Error and Fraud Issues... At absentee as absentee voting rising, and it says um, voting by mail is now common enough and problematic enough that election experts say there have been multiple elections in which no one can say with confidence which candidate was the winner. It, it, the whole article talks about how election experts believe that the fact there's all these paper ballots around are really open to making the, the system open to, to danger. And of course, in election against Trump, if there was that danger. Uh, you would think that would be the, the time when people would really kick into gear. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not an election denier. You know that. I'm saying that, but what I am seeing is how arguments which were perfectly reasonable and even coming from the New York Times all of a sudden become only the thing that an idiot would say if somebody expresses them in the context of Trump. And I, I note that. I'm like, fuck sure, these people. But no, but no. And I watched your interview with Philip Bump, and I yeah. Well, that's another thing they see. Yeah, they see the incurious. Yeah, I thought like the rest of the internet that you got the better of of that conversation. Um, but uh, I'm very glad that I I don't think I'm being bumped today. No, no. Bump bumped himself. I thought you might. You might. That's true. You know. You know. You know. Perhaps. You was worried about yourself that uh, you 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 might be vulnerable to to bumping. Um, uh, but, but 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 look. Politics is full of hypocrisy. And I certainly don't want to pretend for a moment that Democrats are immune to that sin. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams uh, went around the country calling herself a legitimately elected governor of Georgia for a number of years uh, on no strong evidence. Um, uh, and she was celebrated as a great defender of democratic uh, principles and voting rights. And, 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 and I think that that was shameful of her and, and a mistake by, 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 by the sort of broader mainstream and, and, and the democratic world. Um, uh, so, so I'm not saying that there's no hypocrisy there. But the question that we have to ask is, what is going to get us through all of this? Right? That is the question that I'm asking in my work consistently. And I don't think that either 
the actions of someone like Donald Trump, who did refuse to leave office, who did try to stay in office, who tried to get himself <coughs> somehow uh, uh, confirmed for another term through all these alternative voter schemes and uh, all of those things, even though he lost the damn election, as you're acknowledging, I think that's really bad. And by the way, I think what's also oh, it's, bad... It's is, horrible. Is, 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 Don't right, get me wrong. Right. It's horrible. No, no, I, know, um, I know you think that. But, 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 wait, 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 but that's exactly my point. What OJ did was horrible. I'm saying, I'm not ready to say that, you know, the whatever 70% of black America are bad people. I'm saying right. something is going on there which can account for the fact that they're cheering at the fact that this murderer got off. Something is going on here that these people are sure. supporting Trump. And, and, That's and what I'm way, saying. Some, something is going on that makes the, 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 the identity trap, which, which is you know, the subject of my book, appealing to a lot of people as well, which is that they feel America is unfair and injustices persist. And you know, this ideology promises them to uh, do away with those injustices in the most radical and consistent possible way. That's why I think it's a trap, right? When you think about the metaphor of a trap, a trap has a lure, it has a piece of cheese, it has something which attracts you to it. And smart and decent people can end up falling into a trap, but it is ultimately counterproductive. So just to zoom out here a little bit, I think the question to ask is, what is the set of ideas and principles that are actually gonna get us through this moment? Um, and I think it's neither uh, the, 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 the kind of reactionary anger um, uh, are, that people like Trump thrive on, even if some of the reasons for that is, are understandable, and nor is it the rejection of our basic constitutional uh, principles, the rejection of principles like free speech and equal protection, um, that flows out of people uh, who make up critical race theory, even though you might understand their age too. I think the, the, the tradition that has allowed us to make most progress in, in American history um, is the one that flows from Frederick Douglass through Abraham Lincoln to Martin so, Luther King. So, so, so let, me, let me bring up Frederick Douglass, because it's, it's all part of this mix. Frederick Douglass from your book said, liberty is meaningless where the right to utter one's thoughts and opinions has ceased to exist. And then you add, a culture of free speech is only possible when citizens don't have to fear that any errant remark is likely to get them fired from their job and shunned by their friends. This is, you know, one of the things I notice between my elite friends and my people who work in the real world is that if I ask a, a journalist, tell me the last government policy that actually had an effect on you. Like if, if they, 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 they hem and haw, because there really is none. There's like really no law, no policy, not NAFTA. But for a huge swath of other people, including myself, like, oh, then the government did this. And that really, that was a nightmare for me. And, uh, and then, <clears throat> then the government was giving out money to restaurants, but not to white men. And then the government made new trade policies and my factories closed down. And yeah, uh, then somebody at my fact, uh, my company said something. He made a joke, or, or said something, or expressed an opinion, and he got fired. And then my friend spoke up at the school board, and somebody tweeted it out, and nobody wants to talk to him. You know, this is this is a landmine, and they cannot bear to vote for anything that smacks of the people who continue that, and like. Just the no, fact yes, that, but, but, well, let me add one, just the fact that yeah. the Democratic Party now, and I don't vote, the Democratic Party now stands for the default position that every law has to be racial in a sense like, well, you were part of stopping this. 
There's a new COVID vaccines. We're going to prioritize it by race. There's a new uh, antiviral drug, Paxlovid. They actually did. We're going to prioritize it by race. That the Overton window has carried liberal Democrats that far to that craziness, to me, is the gravitational force of partisanship more than anything else. And as much as I'm with you on so much of this stuff, there's a part of me that says, yeah, but there needs to be electoral losses. Otherwise, nothing changes. And that's kind of this this dilemma. A lot of the examples that you describe in my book, right? I talk about Pax Levit and I talk about uh, the, the, the disastrous vaccine rolled out, rolled out in which the CDC decided. Yeah, but name, name a single Democratic politician who complains about it. Zero. That's my point. You have to revo- only Republican will complain point, about it. My point in the book is not to convince people to vote for one party or another. My point in the book is to actually look at these debates about American identity and uh, the role that things like race should play in the society and come up with substantive answers yeah. for what would make for a better world. And I think that's a world in which we acknowledge that obviously injustices exist, that obviously racism and sexism and homophobia exist. But uh, redouble our commitment to the kinds of universal values that have allowed us to make so much progress in history. That's why I was bringing up Frederick Douglass, who called free speech the dread of tyrants. He knew that people in his days had terrible things in newspapers about black people who were still enslaved. But he also knew yeah. that that is what allowed us to fight for abolitionism and uh, to, to, to get rid of slavery. Um, that's why it's important to recognize that we have made progress in America, but America is not as racist and as sexist and as homophobic today as it was 150 or 150 years ago. And therefore, we need to uh, redouble our efforts to live up to these ideas. And that's why I talk through issues like free speech, like cultural appropriation, like this progressive separatism in schools, like race-sensitive public policies, and lay out both the, the principles that I think we should apply to our country and the best arguments to push back against these ideas. But you're kind of still stuck in this logic of partisanship. And to some extent, that is the logic that the structure of American politics imposes on us, right? But, but, but I feel like too much of this conversation between us has ended up being, you know, which of these do you think is the worst pill to swallow? And we have disagreements about that. But I think the more important answer is, how do you actually make an affirmative case for the kind of values that should structure our country and for the way in which you push back against this? Have people on my side of a political eye been too cowardly in arguing back against a lot of these ideas? Absolutely. But one of the reasons for that is that nobody has actually analyzed in a serious way this ideology and developed the arguments that speak against that that are actually going to appeal to the reasonable majority of Americans. You can be Trump shouting about it and that'll play to your base, but it's not going to convince the great majority of Americans. It might convince 47% just about with half of them holding the nose, but it's not going to build the big majority that we need. You said, you know, there needs to be some electoral losses. I ultimately don't care whether those electoral losses come from the left or from the right. I think you could have a, a, a sort of reasonable Democrat who stands up to the crazier parts of a political party, who wins a big majority against somebody like Trump, or you could have, uh, you know, a, 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 a mild right-wing a populist, if you want to use that term, perhaps a Latino or a black politician um, who uh, uh, is able to seize on a lot of this anger, 
but clearly supports democratic institutions and uh, sets themselves apart from the kind of responsible and dangerous politics of Donald Trump. And I think they could also win a big majority. In fact, the best development in our politics over the last years is that knowing somebody's race now tells you less about who they vote for because there's a lot of voters, a lot of them non-white, a lot of them young, a lot of them reasonably progressive who've shifted to the Republican Party because of their concerns over the kinds of things that you're talking about. But right. I think the question is, what is that winning vision? What does that look like? And that's no, Yasha, I'm, 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 I'm with you 110%. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on you know, what I think is the, the realistic bind, the rub of it all, is that, mm. that in order for your ideas, that although though you, you are center-left in your instincts, and, and I might be too, to tell you the truth, and, and though you're writing your book from a center-left point of view, uh, it's really, it's really center-right at this point. <laughs> you know, this is this is the uh, this is this need this will carry at some point. A critical mass of people will cross over to become moderate Republicans. I believe is the way this is going to end. Look, much I more mean, than the Democratic I, Party. Look, I would look. You yeah. know what? I, I you'll be fine with that. I, I mean, if yeah. Mitt Romney was president of this country, I'd be just fine, right? Like, I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't be concerned. Yeah. I don't see a sign of that in Republican. Party politics. Well, do you, do you find I mean, Trump? You have, you have you have Donald Trump uh, uh, by far and away uh, dominating the primaries. And then the next guy up in a lot of the polls is Vivek Ramswami. Um, uh, you know, and and the people who I would think of as center right politicians within the Republican coalition, uh, some of whom I find more more appealing than others, um, uh, are you know about six percent. So, 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 you know, where's the evidence that the Republican Party is about to? I, I, I hope so. We need well, a right of center party that is sensible in this country. Okay, what is is Trump? Is Trump an authoritarian? Listen, I should probably say the reason I don't think Trump should be president, and I said this, I have emails saying this in 2015, probably, is that he's unhinged, and that if you need a president to be competent, which happens every periodically in history. Uh, you need a president who's you, you, you don't and you really need a president to be competent. Can I picture Trump fighting World War Two or taking on Brezhnev or, or like any of these serious uh, situations in history? No, I can't. I, I, I was scared the shit out of me when he was calling uh, the, the, the North Korean president rocket man. I'm like this is this is just reckless behavior. And I I wouldn't hire a guy like that as a, a restaurant manager. That, that's but other than that. And that's huge, and that's disqualifying. Do I think he's authoritarian? No, I don't think he's authoritarian. Do I think he's uh, looking to end democracy? No, I thought he was looking to cheat to win another election like, like JFK may have done. I don't think So, so Trump perhaps was, it helps to yeah. talk about why uh, I do like the concept of populism, why I think that it's a helpful way to understand the world. And part of the problem with this is just verbal. Like in America, there's always the... Um, confusion between populists in the sense of a late 19th century populist party, which is the kind of way in which Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are populist, which is kind of like very lefty on economic issues or something like that, right? That's mm -hmm. not the, the sense of populism that I mean. When I talk about populists, I talk about people like Recep Erdogan in Turkey, like Viktor Orban in Hungary, like Narendra Modi in India, like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, like AMLO 
in Mexico and, I would argue, like Donald Trump in the United States. Now, what do they have in common? In a way, they're a very, very weird, heterogeneous bunch, right? They, some of them are left-wing, some of them are right-wing, some of them uh, are Christian, some Hindu, some Muslim, uh, you know, all kinds of important political differences. One thing they have in common is that they say, I and only I truly represent the people. And anybody who disagrees with me is by virtue of that fact illegitimate, is a traitor, is un-American or un-Turkish or un-Venezuelan, right? Um, and, and that, I do think, makes them dangerous. Not just the anti-elitism. It's not that they rail against the political system. That can be legitimate. There's lots of reasons to distrust the elite. It's the anti-pluralism. It's the fact that we cannot have a legitimate political disagreement. It's the fact that we're not willing to do what John McCain did in the last days of the 2008 presidential campaign when somebody at a town hall said, you know, Barack Obama is a dangerous man and if he gets, becomes president, I'm worried for this country. And McCain said, I think I'm better than Obama. It's really important you vote for me. You know, my policies are better. I'm going to be better for the country. But you know what? Obama is a decent man and you don't have to be afraid if he becomes president. It is the refusal to do all of those things. And I think that does make Trump an authoritarian. Not because on day one he thought he was an authoritarian, not because in his secret dreams he's like, ha, 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 I'm going to destroy American democracy, but because whenever there is something in his way, whenever somebody tells him, Mr. President, actually you don't have constitutional authority to do that. Uh, Mr. President, actually, uh, you know, these people have decided something you don't like. He says, how can we do that? I'm a president. I should be allowed to do whatever but I Yasha, want. No, no, no. I, I have, but we know Biden was told he couldn't do loan forgiveness. He didn't have authority. He did it anyway. We know Obama told he couldn't, was told he couldn't legalize the Dreamers, and he did it anyway. We, every president has done that. We know when no, Trump did... No, but but, no, it, 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 we're making this argument like it's 2018. I mean... What about January 6th? We don't have to get into exactly what words Trump said on that day or whatever, but the larger movement to discredit the election and to say... <clears throat> You're right about January 6th. Right. And so, so, so how, you know, like we don't have to go but, back to but, the arguments of 2018, 2019, where I think you would have had a case, we could have argued uh, well, that before. You're reading so my mind. We have, the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean... You're right about January 6th uh, in, in terms of him trying to cheat to win this election. There's a lot of fuzziness about that because if you go and I read it, if you go and read the uh, the, the Green Bay uh, uh, plan that they had with Navarro and Eastman and Bannon, it never it never imagined violence. It it imagined a very very bad faith procedural challenge, which presumably would have wound up in the Supreme Court. This is call it authoritarian, call it whatever you want, but I, I just want to state for the record that everything you're saying was said by people for four years, right up until midnight on January 5th, 2021. And, you know, up until that point, uh, uh, they didn't have much to go on, except except they correctly had a feeling in their gut that this guy would be capable of things that other people would not be capable of. And they were right about that. They were right about that. I I would say they were right about, about that for a reason, which is that... Uh, uh, you know, that one of the analytical tools I have for understanding politics is to look at whether somebody is yeah. a populist in the sense that they're anti-elitist, but that they're also anti-pluralist. Obama was anti-elitist when he first ran in certain ways, saying there's all kinds of problems in DC. The question is, are they anti-pluralist? Do they make these claims that if you don't agree with me, if, you don't, if you're not on my side of the political aisle, 
when you're not just a political <coughs> adversary, but you're really an enemy. Okay, well, let me make... Not truly, and, and I think that does, in fact, predict people's actions when they're in office worldly well. It doesn't mean that every populist always destroys the country, because there's obviously people who then try to stand up to that, and so sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. Um, but that is what people who have managed to destroy the democratic institutions of a country uh, by the way of originally being elected right. do have in common. People like Chavez and like Erdogan and uh, that's what I saw, right? So it's not just like a random hunch. It's, it's applying an analytical framework that has helped to explain politics in other countries to the United States. The problem is you, you know too much and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and you will without meaning to uh, ascribe to people on the other side, you know, informed decisions that they're not making about election fraud or whatever. And, and, I, and I, keep, I think really the key here is if, if we want to solve this, I have to figure out why do they keep inflaming these Trump voters? So I said the other day, it turned out that the real lasting damage of COVID was not that people stopped shaking hands and not that people wouldn't go to businesses anymore, not that people would stop uh, uh, congregating in spaces. The real lasting damage of COVID is, is a total mistrust of institutions. We thought we couldn't right. mistrust. And that's well, staying. Let, let alone if we, yeah. if we have another virus that doesn't have a you know, case fatality rate of you know, whatever it ended up being with COVID, zero point something percent. Yeah, but but it, 10 or 20 percent, right? Like nobody is going to be willing to take the actions it would take to stop it. But, but we, we don't trust what we're told. We don't trust the experts, right. the Trump voters especially, because they're not doing deep dives like you and I do. They're, they're not forming nuanced opinions. Yes, they are in some way being fed stuff from uh, sketchy sources. But they also know that the other side lies to them. I'll give you a perfect example. Do you remember how many articles, we've talked about this in the conversation, how many articles and TV segments we saw about Trump likely being in cognitive decline in like 2016 and 2017? The Atlantic ran two articles about it, Stat News. You might correct me if I'm wrong here. In all the tell-all books that have come out since Trump uh, left office by people who hated him, Bolton, all of them, not one person has talked about him having cognitive decline. This yeah, I mean, was clearly, I mean, so far as we can tell at this point, he clearly doesn't right. seem. This was concocted, and it was it was told to us as news. It was such urgent news that even the normal ethical boundary that people shouldn't ever uh, diagnose somebody they haven't was suspended. The Trump voters see this and say. Now you want me to believe everything you're telling me about the election. You've concocted thing after thing after thing to me, and now you're holding it against me? Listen, uh, it's, it's OJ again. Now you want me to believe the police? Like, you don't, you don't know what life like, look, looks like for me vis-a-vis -vis the police. But, 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 but no, I, I agree with all, yeah. all of that. The question is, how yeah. do we move out of that, right? Like, if, if you're, if you're it, diagnosing, why is it that so many people uh, have mistrust in the institutions? Why is it that so many people think that Trump is the lesser of two evils? Um, why I, know how to, I know how to move out of it. The President of the United States should, should make a speech that shows he understands that and, and, and rather than call... Yeah, and if I, and if I no. was his, his speechwriter, I, I, I would be advising him to do that. But, but my is, that he is, double, not, he, is that he doubles down on the fact that they want to bring back Jim Crow, that they want to do this, want to do that? He, 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 he gets up with his red background and, it, he, and, he, and, and they read him loud and clear. They read him loud and clear. And it's, you know, I... 
it's it's um it's upsetting, right? It's upsetting. Like how do how do we break out of this? Well, I think part of how we break out of it is to actually explain to people on that side of political spectrum why the ideals are wrong-headed. And so both this book and the last book I wrote argued against the myth that we haven't made any progress on stuff, right? Like this idea that, 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 that basically we're about to have reintroduction of Jim Crow is based on a denial of uh, being able to make progress, which really is at the heart of this ideology, right? Let's, let's, let, 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 let me tell you this. We've talked about the main theme of the identity traps, uh, right? The... the skepticism of truth and the embrace of strategic essentialism and so on. Another way to think about it is what are really its core tenets? What are really the core ideas that this ideology has? And it goes to basically that point. In a way, Joe Biden, when he's saying that, is channeling this tradition, right? I think, in my mind, the three main claims of the identity synthesis is, number one, that the key way to understand any social situation or any political question is race, gender, and sexual orientation. This is the key prism that allows you to understand the world. Right? Uh, Robin D'Angelo says that um, every time a, a, a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the whole apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. Right? Um, number two, that uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, those are all uh, just an attempt to pull wool over people's eyes. They actually have a purpose of perpetuating racial and other forms of discrimination. And then, number three, therefore, as Derek Bell puts it, we have to reject, quote-unquote, the defunct racial equality ideology, end quote, of the civil rights movement, right? What we have to do is to create a world in which how we're treated always depends on the group we're from, a world in which you're split up into different racial groups in all kinds of different contexts, right? Now, I think that people, whether on the center-right or the center-left, um, should have a coherent response to that, a coherent response which helps to understand why some people are attracted to this ideology um, uh, that commits itself to making the world a better place, to remedying the injustices that do persist, but that doesn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. And so here's the three responses that I think we need to give. Number one, sure, in some context, race, gender, and sexual orientation are important to understand reality. There is racism in America, of course there is. There's homophobia and all of those things. But it is not the key prism. It is not the only prism to understand society. As John Hyde has put it, uh, if you have a monomaniacal view of a world where you only look at it through one prism, you're going to go wrong. There's also social class. There's also religion. There's also individual character and ambition and aspirations and taste and aesthetics. right? Um, and so rather than looking at each situation and imposing a view on it, we have to look at it and letting it teach us what is most important. In some contexts, that might be race. In other contexts, it's going to be other things like class and religion and individual attributes. Right? Um, secondly, it is a lie that America is about to return to Jim Crow. It is a lie that we haven't been able to make any progress. We have made progress, and we've made progress precisely because of people who have insisted that we live up to those values. Frederick Douglass recognized in his famous speech on the 4th of July that his compatriots were being hypocrites by talking about how lovely it is that all men are born equal while slavery still persisted. But he didn't say, rip up the Declaration of Independence. He said, live up to it. If you mean mm -hmm. these values, how can you exclude me from them? Martin Luther King didn't say, uh, he recognized that uh, the promissory note issued to African Americans have so, has so often been broken in American history, but he demanded that the Bank of Justice honor that check, right? Um, and so that's what we should be 
doing. We should recognize the progress we've made because of the people who fought for those values, and we should have a vision for the future in which we live up to our universal values rather than giving up to them. And I think that helps us get out of this, you know, uh, Trump is bad, but it's understandable why the people hate him, and so therefore, all of that is right, and that's an important conversation in itself, sure. But, uh, but I think the really important question is, what is the moral center? What is the set of values and the language? And the actual arguments on specific issues like cultural appropriation, like free speech, like these new practices in schools of segregating kids by race, but allows us to push back against this stuff. And then you can talk and shout at all of your center-left <laughs> friends, of which I know you have many, and say, do more. I think yeah. I'm doing my bit. But others should do that too. I agree with you 100% on that. It would feel as lonely for me as well. A couple other things. I, I agree with you a, a, a thousand percent. Um, speaking of Martin Luther King, it's a, it's a very nice illustration of just how f- far the Overton window has shifted on to, to the center and to the left in the Democratic Party and in Elite America that Coleman Hughes uh, had to scratch out the ability to have his TED Talk platformed when they when they wanted to deplatform it or whatever the phrase is uh, simply because he gave a speech advocating colorblind policies and in all the talk about it one of the that you might read online <clears throat> few people have really focused on that they they kind of say well some things are over the line and people have to you know where do you draw the line whatever it is and nobody stopped to say wait a second are we really ready to entertain the idea that somebody advocating for colorblind policies is even near the line? <laughs> like, right. are we going to debate? And, you know, and I see that. I'm like, well, oh, Chris Anderson, the-, the, the head of TED, said that, you know, um, he wants to have this open debate, but also he has to be very uh, sensitive to his staff when somebody's attacking their identities. And the idea that Coleman uh, was in any way attacking their identities is... Uh, it's really a form of calumny. I mean, it, it's, it's just an, an entirely baseless. Well, you end up agreeing with Coleman or not or whatever. The idea that he was attacking the identities of TED employees um, no, it's, by, it's by ma- it's madness. his vision of colorblindness is... It, no, I agree. It's just as crazy as the crazy stuff the Trump supporters say. It's a, it's a more refined, better presented crazy, but it's just as... It, and it's, it's maddening. And, uh, you know, I, I just... It, I, I wish Trump would, you know, just pass from the scene, so that there can be a an intelligent conversation about this stuff. So, you know, an example, but we're going to wind up the wall. I was thinking about the wall the other day, and I'm like, and I'm trying to take it step by step. I say, well, we have obviously we have to control the border. You have to you have to control the border. As I told Juanita, we can't really argue about who comes in in and out of our house can't have a policy on that unless we're prepared to lock the doors and lock the windows so that we can decide who comes in. Otherwise, it's just a waste of words because if anybody can walk in and out anyway, policy is meaningless. So in order to have an immigration policy, you have to control the border. To control the border, you have to have a barrier. And there's not unlimited types of barriers. You can have snipers, you can have dogs, you can have landmines, or you can have a wall. And also I found myself saying, you know what? The wall may be by far the most humane barrier anybody can think of. Or we can just 
talk nonsense for the next 20 years and say we're going to have some policy that's going to stop. Kamala Harris is going to go down to Central America and she's going to cure the economic problems there and they'll just <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll just stop. This, but this is what they say, right? This is this right. is this is again, this is like how how dishonest it all is. Very, very credible, smart people will listen to the president. And I'm going to send the vice president. And she's going to solve. Yeah, I say, yep. Now we have a policy. This is yep. And this is nonsense. Everybody knows it's nonsense. And and you know who also knows it's nonsense? The Trump voters know it's nonsense. And they also know that every time they complained about immigration being a tax on their resources, they were called racists. Until it happened in New York. In which case, now it's, it's no, you haven't heard anybody. It's not a racist. racist. To be fair, a lot of people called the black mayor of New York a racist too after he spoke uh, about uh, it. So. A li- there, was a, there was a little inclination, a little, but, but in general, the Democratic Party has stood down on the notion well, that. Well, I think the, the interesting thing politically here, yeah. the interesting thing politically here is that um, there was this famous post mortem report in 2012 within the Republican Party um, led by Reince Priebus. Um, I mean, like, how do we lose again to Obama, right? And he said, well, the problem is the Democrats do so much better among non-white voters, um, and so we really need to make a play for Latino voters as well as African-Americans and Asian-Americans. And the way to do that is to move towards the center on politics and in particular to embrace, finally, a grand bargain on immigration reform, which, by the way, I think is a good idea for, on, on, on of the merits of it. But, um, but that's, you know, like us showing that we're moderating on immigration that's what's going to allow us to make a play for those Latino and other voters, right? Um, and Trump has always been interpreted as rejecting that strategy and saying, no, I'm going to double down on the white vote, and that's how I'm going to become president. But everybody said that's not possible. That's why in 2016, all of these articles on NPR and so on were saying, you know, there's just not enough white people left to elect Donald Trump. Um, and yet he did win in 2016. He won, uh, uh, and he um, uh, won a surprising share of a vote in uh, 2020, and he's running even in 2024. And the fascinating thing that happened is that in 2020, Joe Biden won because he increased, he significantly increased his share of the vote among white voters. And Donald Trump came close to winning because he significantly increased the share of the vote among non-white voters. And that Amazing. polarization has continued since. So basically, Trump has carried out Reince Priebus's plan. He has figured out how to get Latinos into the Republican Party. It's just through a very, very different set of policies than what uh, basically everybody, probably including Donald Trump, thought was necessary in order to do that. And one of the keys to that is that there's a majority of people in favor of building a wall on the southern border of which country you think, Norm? I I don't know. What? A majority of Mexicans favor building a wall on the southern border of Mexico. Uh, I, I misunderstood the question. Yeah, so, I've heard that, yes. So, so, so there's a sort of simplistic idea that all Latinos um, have this mythical solidarity with, with, with each other, which is absurd if you look at the history of any Latin American countries where there's complicated racial tensions within those countries. And it's absurd because a lot of Latin American countries don't want immigration from other Latin American countries, right? Um, and so, um, you know, just as a political matter, I think there's a real naivety here in terms of how people think and, and talk about it. Um, you know, part of the question about the wall is uh, what role a physical barrier plays versus a broader fight against the poor factors, right? Um, when I was on a, on a fellowship in England recently, 
before I could take possession of the apartment they'd given me, before I could get, you know, a, a college card that would give me access to the facilities and the, and the dining hall, um, I needed to come into the office to prove that I have legal entitlement to be in the country. And that is true for any job that you're going to have in the United Kingdom and in Germany and in Italy and practically anywhere else in the world. Um, it is remarkable in the United States that in so many contexts you don't have to do that. Now, I have uh, uh, a lot of sympathy for uh, the undocumented immigrants in the United States. Many of them are incredibly hardworking people who come from genuinely harsh backgrounds, sometimes fleeing political oppression in places like Venezuela. Um, and most of them are very decent, hardworking people who, whom I wish the best to. But who, who, we, who, we, who we absolutely need to run this country, by the way. Absolutely. Um, but obviously, you can't uh, create that incentive to come work here, right? To say, if you're willing to uh, pay uh, human traffickers and, 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 and run across the desert and uh, take all of these risks, and then once you're here, then you're going to have a much better standard of life, right? It's the same in Europe. You can't say, hey, you know, our system is going to be that if you're genuinely, uh, uh, you know, poor and oppressed, but you don't have the money to make it here, well, tough luck, we're not going to help you. But if you're somehow able to risk your life crossing the Mediterranean, you get lucky enough not to drown, welcome in, right? That is clearly the wrong set of incentives. And, uh, and that's something we have to deal with in, in, a, in a systematic and humane way. Would, would you say, that, we're, we're gonna, I guess two more minutes, Trump is correctly uh, called a huge liar, Obviously, without January 6th. I mean, you know, he lies and lies and lies, says whatever he wants. But I would imagine, I don't know this, that if you were to um, list the, the 20th and 21st century presidents in order of who did the most polling before they uttered policy positions, I think Trump would probably come in last. We, I don't think Trump was putting his finger to the wind very often about anything. It was, uh, I think it was in the Atlantic or what, where they actually had transcripts of him on the phone with a guy, with the president of Mexico, where he was very earnestly saying, no, we need to build a wall. I really need you to pay for it. You know, it, it was shocking. And it, and it struck me, and again, you're not supposed to say this, that in terms of honesty of his, of his basic intentions, what he said he cared about and wanted to do and what he really seemed to try to do for... Trump was among the most honest presidents we ever had. Is that, is that crazy talk? Uh, I would say he was one of the most unvarnished presidents we've ever had. Um, I mean, look, uh, we, can, we can wordsmith over exactly how to express this point. I, I, I take the larger thought that you have. I mean, I always go back to the moment in the presidential <coughs> debate in 2016 where uh, Hillary and Trump were both asked um, uh, why Hillary had been at Donald Trump's wedding, an amazing little fact about American politics. Um, And Hillary said in a way that is exactly the kind of disingenuous political answer that you would expect. Oh, I thought it would be fun, right? I mean, now, you don't need to know very much about Donald Trump. You don't need to know very much about Hillary Clinton to recognize that Hillary Clinton did not think it was fun. I bet that morning she wasn't saying to Bill, oh, goody, we get to go to Donald's wedding, said, oh, my God, why on earth do we have to do this? But I guess we have to, right? Um, And Donald Trump said, I'm a real estate guy. I need political connections. Of course I invited Hillary Clinton, right? Um, So he was admitting to 
playing the political system in a sense in a dishonest way, right? Like, like, mm-hmm. like, I know you want to call it corruption or not, or exactly what you want to call it, right? But it's like, to get shit done, I have to have these connections. I have to butter people up, right? It's a kind of admission of a basic corruption in the system, at least. Um, but he was surprisingly honest about the existence of that corruption in a way that Hillary was not. She said, oh, I thought it would be fun. She didn't say, well, let's go along and get along. And even though I never liked Trump and always thought he was kind of a crude asshole, you know, I, I, I thought I kind of better keep on the good side of him and he hadn't declared his... Pre- that would have been, I assume, something like the honest answer. But of course, she didn't give an answer. She said it would be fun. And, and Trump, in that context, gave an answer that, that, that actually is much more forthright. So I agree that there is something... Uh, unvarnished in, in in a real way about Trump, which is a lot of his a lot of his appeal. I mean, I, I, you, your eyes can glaze over at all the dishonesty in our system. Like the Trump tax cuts, we heard this was a terrible tax plan. It's an it's it's bad for the middle class. It's bad for the poor. Blah blah blah. And then the Democrats take both houses and the presidency. And what do they? What change do they fight for in this tax? This horrible tax plan. They can vote whatever they want. They want to get rid of the SALT tax, which is a state and local taxes deduction for over $10,000 for their rich, for the rich people. No talk of going back on this tax plan but, that was so no, terrible but, for but, the... But, they but, wanted to service the wealthy. But you've got to admit that it goes both ways. And yes, yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. Trump, I don't, I mean, I, Trump, I, uh, Trump in 2016 promised to be a great spokesman for working class people in ways where I, I get why it appealed to some people, right? But in, in, in reality... Um, his economic policies did not stand up for the working class. Did but that not- wasn't a lie. That wasn't a lie. But I'm going to stipulate that there's no difference between left and right. It's, it's a human thing. But, I mean, Trump was in, under the sway of this, of this wacky economist Navarro about um, uh, uh, tariffs and stuff like that, which maybe you're a super genius, but, you know, every time but, I but hear the- them... Trump claims that he cares genuinely for the economic well-being of, you know, hard work and whatever Americans in the same way in which he has always been a kind of scam artist with Trump University and all of those kinds of things, he doesn't give a damn about the economic well-being of a working class, which is part of sort of what actually upsets me about this. I mean, at the moment, the the American working class doesn't have a political spokesperson. That used to be the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party, both in terms of who votes for it and particularly in terms of its politicians, its staffers, its larger non-profit uh, world, its donor network, has become a party of the elite. And the Republican Party has the working class votes, um, but when push comes to shove, they don't actually vote for working class economic interests. And so the, the people who are actually getting a hard deal in America right now don't really have political representation. I just read a new paper by, by Angus Deaton and Anne Case at Princeton showing that you know, America, uh, they came up with this data 10 years ago, that America now has much lower life expectancy than other wealthy countries, but it's gone down for the first time in American history outside of times of pestilence and war. This was among, tr- among Trump voters. And, uh, a lot of it among Trump voters. And the main thing that predicts that is whether or not you have a BA degree. If you have a BA degree, yeah. your life expectancy is comparable to Switzerland and Sweden. If you don't have a BA degree, you are getting screwed. Your life expectancy is similar to some third world countries, right? Um, but Trump hasn't done anything to revert that. And so well, if you're angry about the hypocrisy, then, then you should have equal opportunity anger. I, 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 I don't want to defend him because, but I, but I, but I don't, I'm, I'm saying that when they talk about the tax policy, it was, it was a lie. Trump, um, Trump is, is ill-advised. It may not be possible. We all know this. It, it may not be possible to help these people. The economy, 
is global now, and it just may not be possible for them to make a living wage doing anything related to what people in other countries can do at one-tenth the, the price. That's, that's just the reality. Trump may try, things may that, change. That may or may not be reality, but I don't think that Trump tried. I think it's important to criticize hypocrisy, but I, I think too much of your affect is anti-anti. Right, it's like yeah, I'm anti anti Trump. That's exactly I'm anti anti Trump. That's that's exactly where I'd put it. Yeah, I'm not pro Trump. I'm anti anti. Yeah, but I think like 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 you need to go beyond that to actually assessing <clears throat> the things, not just from you know all of what you're doing is like imminent discourse critique, and you're a master at it. I mean, you have no, no. called bullshit on things way before other people. You've you've you know Jesse Smollett. You were the first person to tell me. You know, in very early on, when a lot of the details went out yet, this doesn't smell right, right? So you're a master at smelling bullshit, and that's a lot of your skill. But I worry that at some point, as the famous sewing goes, um, uh, you know, if, 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 if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And sometimes it's important yeah. to go out of the discourse and out of what's bullshit in the discourse and out of your mastery at recognizing what's bullshit in the discourse to zoom out and say all right so what are the <coughs> overall contours of this debate and and how do we actually uh, you, you you could be right that he, through it you could be right that he didn't try it seemed to me they made they, they made some moves uh with with tariffs with, as i said misguided like, i don't know if they were going to work but that he 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 took steps in that direction and why wouldn't he doesn't you you could say he cares about them not care about them but he's a politician so it's, it's in his interest to try, even if he doesn't care about them. I think Trump, I don't know if he's capable of caring about others, but I think he is sincerely nostalgic, and this is both a plus and a minus, for a, a certain uh, a more nimble America that was less dependent on f- the foreign world and was more um, the center of the universe uh, and I'm and I have that nostalgia too. Our right, last question: I saw your interview with uh, Stephen Levitsky, uh, for, and um, he he said something interesting about how the the, the Republicans have lost the the popular vote since uh, have won the popular vote only once since what year is it? Since two thousand? Yeah, I think yes. Yeah, they only won it. The only one. The only time they won the popular right, vote two thousand four. Right? Yes, but two thousand they lost the popular vote. They won it so since 2000. They've only won the popular vote once, and he said that you know what's the matter with them? They they should uh, change course and blah blah blah, and, and and it made sense. And then I had a horrible thought. <clears throat> you know, in Israel, and I and I and then I asked try to find the date on this. In Israel, uh, the Orthodox vote so uniformly as a block that they're able to exercise an outsized influence and steer the elections. In America, black people vote something like 93% for the Democrat, no matter what. And I asked somebody for the data. I said, what, how many, what percentage of black people would have to vote for Republicans such that Republicans would have won 100% of the uh, election since 2000, the popular vote? And the answer that came back was but somewhere between 11 and 20. 11% would have been enough for most of them, I think, and the, the worst are 20%. So it, uh, it's, it's an interesting way to look at, at identity politics that, yes, on the one hand, you'd say it really seems like the Republicans are you know, trying to subvert the popular will, whatever it is. But then when you realize that there's one, that, that if, if, if black America, and, and I'm not, 
gainsaying or I'm not uh, uh, disputing their wisdom in, in voting 93% for, for Democrats. They're, they they know what's in their own interest, probably, and they're probably right. But it is still noteworthy that that one group is able to then, contr- they really control the, it's not quite what Levitsky says. It's not as if there's this popular will out there and they're well, hoping for that sure. game with it. But, but you could make the same argument for any similar sized demographic group. So it doesn't matter what Jews or Native Americans do because they're too small. The, the groups are too small. But if, uh, if Asian Americans moved uh, in significant numbers towards Republicans, and certainly if Latinos, who are actually a bigger group, moved in significant numbers towards Republicans, um, that would have a huge impact on the vote as well. So I think it's slightly weird to isolate this one demographic well, group. We, we, now, we only, now, no, it's not weird to isolate. We only have one group that votes. If, if, if blacks would have vote only as democratic as Jews vote, Republicans right, right. Would, have won, w- yeah. would have won every single popular vote election since, since I 2000. Think this, is, this is the strongest argument. So, so, so the thing that really drives me nuts, uh, you know, here's where I'm anti-anti, right? There's this idea of the United States Census Bureau that America is going to be majority-minority. Um, that uh, by 2043 or 2045, 2047, they keep changing the exact prediction. Um, you know, a, a majority of Americans are going to be people of color. And, and, and it's these two blocks, whites and people of color, right? And then the political upshot of this has become for many people that uh, since whites tend to vote more for Republican Party and non-whites tend to vote more for, for Democrats, um, you know, then Democrats will have this natural emerging majority. And again and again, we've seen that this is bullshit, right? We've seen right. in California, which is very democratic-leaning, that they re- vote against affirmative action, so against one of the key planks of a democratic platform. We've seen in Florida, which is now just in the cusp of being a majority-minority country, that a purple state has turned into a very red state, in large part because so many Latinos in Florida have moved towards the Republican Party, and not just those who come from Venezuela or Cuba, but people from all over Latin America, including a lot of Mexican-Americans, right? Um, uh, and actually, I think that's a, that's a great thing. I, I, as we've been discussing throughout this conversation, prefer the current Democratic Party to the current Republican Party, even if I'm not a big fan of it. Right? Um, but I don't want to live in, Amer- in an America where I can come to the comedy cellar and look at the crowd and look at somebody's color of the skin and know who they're voting for. That would be a terrible America. Right? And so I think that the fact that the American electorate has depolarized by race is a very, very good thing. It's one of the few genuinely good pieces of news about our politics in the last eight or 10 years. And when you talk to African-Americans and when you look at polling questions about their political views, the idea that that they uniformly have the progressive politics of the Harvard graduate seminar room is laughable, right? A lot of them are quite socially conservative. Um, uh, a lot of them should naturally vote for the Republican Party. And so here I think there's a great opportunity for the Republican Party. Because well, this, this one is... of the reasons why people don't vote, one of the reasons why African Americans don't vote for the Republican Party is that they say, look, on a whole bunch of stuff I agree with them. I might agree with them on some economic policies. I might agree with them on some questions regarding trans rights. I might agree with them on all kinds of things. But in the end, I just don't trust that they're looking out for my interests. In the end, I just don't think they're on my side. And I think yes. the Republican Party can do things to change that. And it started to do things to change that in certain respects. I hope it will, because um, even if I don't want Republicans to win in most elections, perhaps, um, I think that would be a really good thing for American politics. And so I, I hope that people in the Republican Party take the data point you're talking about and say, hey, 
we might not win a majority of African Americans, but getting to 20% yeah. is going to make a huge difference. And that is eminently achievable for a Republican Party this, that, this, that, that firmly welcomes black people into its ranks. This is exactly my point. This is why, and Levitsky would be, I mean, the, the rug would be pulled out from under him because it's not that the Republicans necessarily even need to change their position so much as they, it's what you said, they need to convince, now this won't, they won't be able to do what I'm saying if they don't mean it, and they probably and they may not mean it, but if they could convince black America that they actually do care about them, in the same way if the Democrats could convince the Trump voters that they actually do care about them, then they will be able to peel off some numbers. And, and there's no question, just like it is among Jews, there's a psychological aversion within Jews and within the black community to vote for Republicans. You know, like, I don't, I don't vote, for, vote for Democrats, but to vote for Republican would be very hard for me. I, it just, it's just the way we're raised. You're not supposed to vote for, but I know it's not rational. It's, it's, it's um, and I'm sure it's three times. I would say on the country, it's your rational side pulling you away from Donald Trump. <laughs> well, and, I, and I'm sure it's the same in, in, in black America, but it just, it's, it's really on a, on, a, on a knife's edge. And it would be, and it's amazing that Trump is being able to break through where other people haven't. And it may have something to do with the fact that um, they like that he shoots from the gut. Uh, they, you know, it's like they, they, they like the fact. I mean, we got to go, Yasha. But just, you know, like when how many candidates over the years dropped out of races because some minor scandal came out? And so you're done. You're, 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 yes, I resign. And then Trump had that, that, that pussy grab tape. And everybody around him, I think Priebus said, you know, Donald, you need to get out. You're never going to win. And he's like... People don't really care about that stuff. Trust me, they don't really care. He had this gut that he knew that it's all false. And he was right. They didn't care. So let me say, let me say one thing to this, and then let me get one yeah. more plug for the book. In. Am I go ahead, go it? ahead. So uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of Trevor Noah's, um, uh, uh, but, but I think he had one great segment, which is when he was saying, Donald Trump, I know Donald Trump. He's an African president. That's oh, the best. You know, like, that's what politics looks like in Africa, right? This idea that there's, you know... Everybody YouTube is. that clip. It's so good. It's so good. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, because it's strongman politics, right? Yeah. And that exists all through the world. There's nothing specifically American about it, right? Um, and, and, and so the fact that that can appeal not only to white voters, but to others as well, when we don't feel personally targeted by it, when we don't feel threatened by it, it should be unsurprising, right? Um, uh, I just want to say uh, to everybody listening, I love talking to Norm and I love his podcast and we agree on lots of things. We disagree on lots of things and we can celebrate the disagreement. And that's great. If you <laughs> we don't disagree on that much. We don't disagree on that much. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> we will actually dwell on what we disagree on. If you want to get out of his pose of being anti-anti-Trump, if you want to think, uh, you know, what is this ideology and what is the best uh, uh, way to argue against it, uh, uh, claiming the moral high ground and standing on principles, um, you know, I hope that this book is for you. But the two audiences I want to reach for it is people who already worry a lot about uh, woke ideology, about what I call the identity trap, um, and who want to have the best arguments to push against it, and to target people who perhaps feel a little bit drawn to it, who feel the law of it in certain ways, um, but who can also smell that there's something wrong about it. So if you fall into the first category, buy the book. If you have a, a sister or a brother-in-law who who falls into the second category, send them the book. Um, I really hope it'll, 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 it'll help more people actually push back against this ideology because, Norm, you're absolutely right, but a lot of people have shamefully absconded uh, from that fight for the last years. 
All right, Yasha, it's always, it's always a pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm pessimistic, um, but, you know, nothing will stay the same. I guess I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future of America. I'm pessimistic about this issue for a while, but we'll see what happens. Uh, all right, that's it. That's Sign fun. off. Sign off. Yeah. It was great. Let, let me press stop. In our interview, Yasha also discussed the intellectual origins of the identity synthesis, which is pretty fascinating. So I'm adding it in here as kind of an appendix to the interview. I, I read the book months ago, and I learned an enormous amount from it. I, there, there's one part of the book which I found fascinating. I don't want to spend too much time on the interview because I don't think it's um, volatile enough to, to uh, hold the audience, but I do want you to touch on it, which is you went back and you traced... Um, the identity synthesis, which I'll let you define, and it's essentially in layman's terms, identity politics and wokeism and stuff like this, to certain founding intellectuals, uh, Foucault, Edward Said, and uh, this was all big news to me. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know who Foucault was, and everybody's astonished to hear that, but I didn't know. So, in, in, a, in a nutshell... Tell us how these intellectual movements led to where we are today. Well, if you don't mind, let me let me set the, the stage a little bit. So, sure. um, you know, I have worried about populism and, and the far right for a long time. But as somebody who teaches at an American university, who's a member of a think tank, who writes in the media, I've also come to be really worried about something that I know you share, Noam, which is uh, you know a concern about a new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation that have become really influential. In American and, and society the, and politics, and, and, over the and, last and these are part. This is part of the bouquet of concerns you have about the thrust to American democracy. Correct? Yes, um, I, I, I think in certain ways they reject uh, the basic constitutional principles on which America is built, uh, quite explicitly. So, and in the case of many of these theorists, as I, as I talk about when we talk about the intellectual history, I also think that, um, though at a superficial level they seem to be the antidote or the opposite of something like far-right populism. Uh, in practical and political terms, one is the yin to the other's yang. So one of the reasons why these ideas became so prominent in progressive spaces after 2016 is that once Donald Trump was in office, it became sort of uh, an act of treason to criticize anybody on the left because you could be accused of running interference for Donald Trump, right? But conversely, I think one of the reasons why Donald Trump is doing so well in the polls and looks like he might beat Joe Biden in 2024 if there's a rematch, as looks likely, um, is because a lot of Americans uh, are deeply worried about the hold these ideas have over the Democratic Party, but more broadly over, over mainstream institutions. So, so tell us quickly about Foucault and Said, just because uh, I don't want to skip over that because it's, it's really fascinating, then we'll jump right back to where you left off with that. So... Um, you know, it's really astonishing that this genuinely novel ideology has taken on so much power. And very few people have tried to explain it. And basically no academic has tried to trace its history uh, uh, or to assess its ideology in an even-handed way. And that shows you how much of a taboo it is in parts of, of, of the academy. And so the only explanation we've really had is from a bunch of, frankly, right-wing polemicists who call it cultural Marxism. Now, as we were saying, my grandparents were Marxist. I, I, I know Marxism very well. Um, I just don't think this is cultural Marxism. For, for one thing, Marxism is so much about the economy 
but it's sort of unclear what is left of it if you take out economic categories like class and put in things like race, gender, and sexual orientation. It's a little bit like saying I've taken you know, bats out of baseball. It's unclear what's left. Um, but most importantly, it doesn't explain the main themes of our politics today. And I think the intellectual history does. So, so I start not with Karl Marx or, or Herbert Marcuse or somebody, but with Michel Foucault. And Foucault was a member of the French Communist Party from 1950 to 1953, um, but rejected Marxism and rejected uh, communism. He rejected more broadly uh, grand narratives about, about history and politics, and which included Marxism as well as liberalism. Um, and he became very skeptical of the ability to have uh, neutral truths uh, or universal values. He doubted that his society had made any progress relative to the past and how it treated the mentally ill or criminals. Um, uh, and he adopted a very different notion of how to think about power, rather than thinking of it as a kind of top-down process where we have laws in the state and the police force and the bureaucracy and they impose the laws on everybody else. He thought of power as, and this has come to be sort of, to, to, to flow in our water in a way, um, as, as discourses. The real way that you exercise power is through this kind of conversation and the, the concepts we use and that helps to construct reality in a way that really constrains the kind of moves that people make. That is the real power. Um, now, uh, so, so the universities are very, uh, uh, would be a seat of power then, correct? The education system. Yes, the universities, system. the newspapers and all of that, but it's really, you know, the thing you have to pay attention to is really the way we use language and construct language. And, and what's interesting about Foucault is that uh, this was an incredibly effective solvent. It could allow you to look at reality and say everything's terrible and I don't believe in our institutions, I don't believe that we've made progress, I don't believe in truth. But it was also uh, apolitical and quietist in a certain kind of way. Foucault thought that there's no, he says there's no place of great resistance. Um, you can oppose our current discourses, but all you'll succeed in doing is to create a new discourse, and that's going to be just as oppressive as the one that came before. And so uh, what we take from that for today is this, is this deep skepticism towards universal truth and universal values. So that's, that's the piece of it that we keep. But in other ways, subsequent thinkers make moves that really, really, really switch the nature of that philosophy. So the second wave, and I'll try and be brief, is the post-colonial thinkers. And they are trying to figure out, you know, we have these newly independent nations in the global south, and we have to figure out how to rule ourselves. And so Foucault's and the postmodernist ability to critique stuff is really attractive to us because we don't want to be ruled by the old Western ideas, right? But we got to do actual politics. We can't be as apolitical as him. And so there's two key moves here. Um, the first, Edward Said in Orientalism says, look, applying the Foucauldian notion of a discourse, he says, uh, uh, you know, one of the ways in which the West could build the colonies is that it had this notion of Orientalism, this, this conception of the East, that justified colonial domination. But the point isn't just to describe it, the point is to invert the power relationship so that the people who were previously uh, oppressed can now go and be more powerful, can actually fight back and perhaps win in that struggle for power. And so from that we take a kind of politicized form of discourse analysis, which is still with us today. Uh, what it is to do politics today for a lot of people if you're a feminist, might be fighting for abortion rights, but part of it is celebrating or critiquing or finding problematic the Barbie movie, right? The idea that part of political battle is to fight over what words to use and how to construct reality 
is something that's very familiar to us, and it comes from, from Said's move. The, the next step that is important is Gayatri Spivak, another post-colonial scholar, who says, look, people like Foucault, you know, they're, they're, they're skeptical of truth and they're skeptical of objective categories of identity. One of the things that actually makes Foucault appealing in a way. Foucault, in our sense, would be a homosexual. He was a guy who had sex with guys. But he didn't like the term. He said that, that constrains uh, too much how to think about sexuality and variety of sexual experience. Oh, thank God. So, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and so we shouldn't put people into these boxes, right? And, and therefore, intellectuals shouldn't, like Marxists wanted, speak on behalf of a proletariat. You know, the proletariat would have to speak for itself. People would have to speak for themselves. And, and Spivak listens to all of this, and she says, look, that might be true for privileged working-class people in France, it's not true for the kinds of subaltern, she calls them, that I grew up with in, in Kolkata, for example. Right? They can't speak for themselves. They don't have the resources. They haven't had the education. So somebody needs to speak for them. And so we need these identity categories. So she comes up with this paradoxical idea of what she calls strategic essentialism. She says these essentialist notions of uh, identity, like the label of homosexuality that Foucault rejected, really are suspect in a, philosoph in a philosophical sense. But for practical political purposes, to allow people to fight against oppression, to organize, and to allow intellectuals like me to speak for the oppressed, we have to embrace them nevertheless. For strategic purposes, we have to act as though the essentialist truth was right. And again, you see that in activist politics in the United States today. You go to an activist meeting, somebody's going to say, race is a social construct, but we need to listen to what black people say. We need to listen to brown voices, right? So, so there's a kind of acknowledgement that essentialism is wrong, and then you go straight on talking as though it was absolutely right, and you separate people into different racial groups in elementary schools, in middle schools, in high schools, in colleges, and diversity trainings, and corporations, right? That is an applied form of strategic essentialism. And then finally... And, and, yeah, go ahead. No, no, and then finally... Yeah, and then finally, the last step, you have a rise of critical race theory. Now, critical race theory is this weird thing where, you know, a bunch of people on the right say teaching kids about slavery in school is critical race theory or something. I mean, as a result, MSNBC says that critical race theory is just wanting to think critically about race and society, and what's wrong with that? You listen to the founders of a tradition, and it's very, very clear and explicit that it's more radical than that, that they actually attack uh, certainly the, the American founding, but also the, the civil rights movement. So Derek Bell, the key figure in this, is this heroic work with the NAACP desegregating schools and businesses and uh, other institutions in the American South throughout the 1960s, but then comes to think of much of that work as a mistake. And he basically says, uh, uh, you know, the segregationist senators who claimed that civil rights lawyers weren't uh, arguing in the interest of their clients, they were just trying to impose their, their ideology of, of, of integration. Um, of desegregation, they were actually right. My, my clients wanted better schools. They didn't care whether they were all black or not. And so in a certain kind of sense, Brown versus Board of Education was a mistake. To do better, we should have had schools that were separate but, but truly equal. And by the way, the idea that the civil rights movement uh, was uh, progress is a mistake. America today is as racist as it was in 1950, as racist uh, as it does was. He, does he mean that for real? Like he would yes. like to see segregation in law conti have continued? So he does. I mean, the... the, the um, uh, da, da, da. Let me look this up for a second. You can cut this, right? Sure, go ahead. Uh, 
Um, what's the word? Um, so he quotes, okay, uh, well, uh, uh, what he certainly thinks is that integration didn't work for his um, clients, mm -hmm. um, and that at least in some circumstances, uh, what we should have done is to give more money to black schools rather than to integrate them. Um, so, you know, the first significant academic article he writes is called Serving Two Masters, which is this segregationist critique of civil rights law, integration ideals and client interests in school desegregation litigation. And the uh, very first thing he does is uh, to uh, quote a coalition of black community groups in Boston, um, saying that in the name of equity, we seek dramatic improvements in the quality of the education available to our children, very reasonable. Any steps to achieve desegregation must be reviewed in light of the black community's interest in improved pupil performance as a primary characteristic of educational equity. Um, it, we think it neither necessary nor proper to endure the dislocations of desegregation without reasonable assurance that our children will instructionally profit. Um, so um, uh, it, it's implicit in all, everything that he's writing that uh, his understandable critiques of how desegregation has played out, which really has gone wrong in some ways, has led him to the conclusion that in many circumstances it might be better to treat those groups separately but give each of them equal status. And so that sort of becomes a founding stone for a lot of race-sensitive public policy today, right? Uh, when uh, during the pandemic the Biden administration decided to make uh, COVID relief for restaurants uh, a priority for uh, minority business owners, right? So that if you're non-white, you're first in line for those kinds of things. That is in some ways downstream from that kind of thinking, saying that uh, in order to have any achievements, it is not enough that we treat people equally. We have to make how the state treats people and how we treat each other explicitly depend on the kind of groups that, that, that we're from. You could add to that Kimberly Crenshaw and her concept of intersectionality and what becomes of that, but you start to see a lot of progressive politics emerging, right? The skepticism of objective truth and universal values that come from Foucault. The, the, the applied discourse critique that comes from somebody like <coughs> Said. The embrace of strategic essentialism that comes from Spivak. The uh, rejection of uh, uh, race-neutral public policies, the embrace of race-sensitive public policies, as well as the deep skepticism about the ability to make progress on racism, on sexism, on, other, on homophobia, on other kinds of metrics that come from Bell, that gives you a lot of contemporary social justice movement politics.